Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. All right, good morning, church. Uh, This morning, before we get started, I want to do something that I think we're, we intend on getting in the habit of doing a little bit more here at Vintage Faith, and that is to pray for the other churches in the area that are teaching and preaching the gospel with us. Um, We're certainly not alone in the Cicero area, and uh, we're not alone in teaching the good news of what Jesus has done. We're surrounded by churches, right? Uh, Some of them we know and partner with, and others we don't, but uh, let's just take a minute and pray for just the gospel in Cicero. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this time to gather this morning as your church. I thank you for the opportunity to join in with the other believers of the world in worshiping you on this special set-apart day, Sunday. Thank you for providing us a place to meet, and thank you for providing us with each other. Lord, we are blessed to be a part of a body of believers and blessed also to be a part of the greater mission to saturate central New York with the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. We thank you for the other churches around us, some that are right in our backyard that come to mind, the Gathering Place, Beacon Baptist Church, Clay Community Church. I pray that you'd be with them while they worship you this morning, just like we are doing. I pray that you would empower them, you would empower them and empower us to teach your word as effectively as possible and to just allow all of us to be embassies of your kingdom on earth. I pray that when people see these churches of yours, that they would see your glory and not our own. I pray that they would see something different, that they would see something different than what they see when they see the rest of the world. Lord, I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that we would also see something otherworldly. Lord, your power and majesty truly are out of this world. So Lord, show us your kingdom. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so if you've all been following along, you may know that we've been in a series on the miracles of Jesus called Signs of Redemption. So we've been taking a set amount of time throughout our teaching this year and really looking into the miracles that Jesus performed during his ministry here on earth. Pastor Anthony and I were thinking through this year how we could go through the Gospels, how we could fit it in. We've done it in years past, and we just realized we haven't done the miracles in a while, so... But Jesus' miracles on earth are significant for many reasons. During Christ's ministry on earth, really what you have are two main pieces, his teaching and his miracles. When talking about miracles, Lee Strobel writes this in his book, The Case for Faith. If there is a creator who designed and brought the universe into being, who sustains its existence moment by moment, who is responsible for the very natural laws that govern the physical world, 
then certainly it's rational to believe that the miraculous is possible. God is capable of all things. Amen, yeah. And we're going to see that today. And for those who believe in Christ, I think it's absolutely easy for us to believe in miracles being possible. But we don't honestly want to stop at miracles just being possible this morning. Jesus performed the miracles for a reason, and they have a lot of implications for us today. So we're going to take some time and look at the story of Jesus walking on water. I think this is a pretty popular miracle. Um, Many people are aware of it, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you probably have heard something about this story. I think it shows up in pop culture at times. I remember there's a scene in the uh, Bruce Almighty movie, right, where Jim Carrey and God, Morgan Freeman, right, they're walking on water. But uh, throughout the whole movie, they played up all the miracles as like tricks, you know, they're like little tricks that Jim Carrey's doing. But we want to take a moment this morning and come at this miracle with an unassuming mindset, assuming that we don't know everything about it, and maybe we can come away seeing some things we haven't seen before. We need to dig deeper and try to come to an understanding of why this miracle was significant and what it really means. So the story of Jesus walking on water really begins with the death of John the Baptist. Many of us are familiar with John the Baptist. We just heard about him in the reading. But as a reminder for those who maybe aren't as familiar, Jesus once called John the Baptist the greatest of all who ever lived. John was Jesus' earthly cousin, and he was the prophet that prepared the way for Christ's ministry on earth. So naturally, John wasn't very popular with people who didn't like Jesus. (laughs) John was captured by Herod and put in jail and later killed. And when Jesus heard about John's death, he tried to go somewhere where he could be alone and pray. But as you saw in the story, he couldn't shake the crowds of people who were seeking him. And as you can imagine, Jesus is a pretty popular guy. As we heard about last week in Pastor Anthony's sermon, Jesus healed these crowds of people and fed them all. He multiplied their fish and bread, and he estimatedly fed 20,000 people. Now, don't let, don't let me lose you yet. We're getting, to, we're getting there. <laughs> um, but it's important to understand what happened before so we really know what's going on. We want to know why did Jesus really want to be alone? You know, the, the story begins, Jesus was seeking to be alone. And this is right where we begin. Verse 22 and 23 of Matthew 14 say this. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus had been trying for a while now to get alone to pray. This is why it's so important when we read the Bible in context to figure out what's really going on. We could have just started right here, but we wouldn't really have known why he was trying to get alone and to pray. Jesus was emotional His cousin had just died, 
the man who prepared the way for his ministry, and the greatest man to ever live had just died. So Jesus told his disciples, you guys all go ahead on the sea. I'll catch up later. I need some alone time, right? And what did he do when he got alone? He earnestly sought time alone to be with God. It's kind of interesting, right, this idea of Jesus spending time in prayer with God the Father. This idea that God and Christ the Son enjoy a time of fellowship with one another. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And these two enjoy the most harmonious and loving relationship that we can possibly imagine. So can I challenge us just a little bit? I know I certainly need it. Um, do we earnestly seek time with God like Jesus did? How often do we intentionally seek alone time to spend meaningful fellowship with God in prayer? I know I personally try my best, but truly, can't we really all afford to spend more time in prayer? Jesus was seeking time to pray all day. How often do we spend our entire day seeking time to pray? How many times can you think of where you've been in the middle of praying and you got distracted and your mind trails off and you have to rope your thoughts back in and get back on track mid-prayer? Has anyone ever done that? I know, I know I've done that. <laughs> Jesus spent all day seeking time to be alone for prayer. And I think we should honestly consider pushing ourselves to do the same and make prayer a priority. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We should all aim to pray without ceasing, right? All right, so if Jesus finally got some much-needed alone time to pray, and it says when he is done, it is evening, and he's all alone because the disciples had left in the boat on his orders. Verse 24 says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. This scene may sound familiar, right? In Matthew 8, Jesus and his disciples had gotten in a boat, and they were in a huge storm, and Jesus woke up, right? Remember, he woke up on the boat, and he calmed the storm. But this time, they're out on rough waters, facing a very similar struggle as last time, but Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't with them. They knew that last time, in the blink of an eye, Jesus could calm the sea, settle the waves, but last time, he was there, and this time, he's not. The term used in the text that measures the distance from the land was many stadia, and a stadia was equivalent to around 600 feet. So based on this same account, 
of the same miracle in the Gospel of John, it is often believed that they were probably a few miles from the shore at the time. And the wind was against them. They were having a hard time making any headway. As you can imagine, this group of guys, Jesus' disciples, they were in a boat, and they were rowing, and they were rowing, and they were rowing. They were fighting waves, afraid of falling out of the ship, probably, or getting lost. Heck, they're already lost, right? They're just not making it anywhere. So this is the picture, right? The, Jesus, the disciples are alone, but sent on the water in the boat without Christ. And they're stuck out at sea. They're scared, feeling weak, defeated. This is not a good time. I mean, think about it. They were probably out there for hours, just stuck in this storm. But now comes Jesus. In verse 25, it says this. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. All right. This is what we've been waiting for, right? Jesus, just like the last time they were in trouble in a ship, is coming to save the day. Just display, but also just displaying total domination and control of all creation in the process. I mean, think about it. He is defying the laws of physics right now. <laughs> when was the last time that you went into a pool or a bath or into the ocean and your foot didn't go right through the water, right to the bottom of the container of the water, right? I know I've never once in my entire life seen water hold someone on top of it. But honestly, many times in the Bible, God has shown full control over water. In creation, God separated the water from the land, right? God once flooded the entire earth to cleanse it. In, ex in the Exodus, God parted the Red Sea. And in the act of walking on water, Christ is showing his disciples that he has the same dominion over the water that God the Father has. On top of this total control of the water, we need to keep in mind this was in the middle of the night, early morning even. The text describes it as the fourth watch of the night. And back in that culture, the Romans divided the 12-hour shift between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. into four three-hour shifts. So this is all happening between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. You know, earlier I said hours. They were probably out there all night in this storm. Between 3 and 6 in the morning, Jesus goes to the disciples by walking on the sea, right? It's, it's honestly kind of crazy. I can't get over it. Like, just trying to picture that in my head. Honestly, picture yourself in that situation. You're stuck at sea in rough waters, and you look out, and you see a man walking through the waves. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Next in the story, this is what it says. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. Ah! They cried out in fear. The Greek word being used is phantasma. And it's a term for spiritual appearance or apparition. It's actually possible that at this point, after having gone through so much hardship on the water as they did, that they may have believed that they were seeing an evil spirit or a demon that was trying to deceive them. If it weren't enough that they were tired and afraid from being lost at sea, they look up and they see a ghost. Can it really get much worse than that, honestly? <laughs> and yet they look at this man and they, they see, that might be Jesus, right? They realize this might be the man who can help them more than anyone else. This is the man they need, right? Now remember, Jesus is the one who sent them on this journey in the first place. And Jesus is the one who saved them last time that this happened. We've seen Jesus calm a storm before, but the difference this time is that Jesus comes to them in the storm. He walks on the storm. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now this is a very significant part of the story, and it would be easy to just blast past it to overlook it. Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. He responds to the winds and the waves and the craziness of the ship by telling his disciples to take heart. Or some Bible translations say to take courage. The idea of taking heart is to take control of your mind so that you can become brave, courageous, and face difficult times. But honestly, in my opinion, the sweetest part of what he said is the following part. The part where he says, it is I. Now, Christ is all they need, literally, in this moment of fear, but he's also metaphorically what they need for their souls. And Christ is actually making a claim at this moment to being the one true God of Israel, the Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and Omega. The word he uses to address himself as I in this passage is actually the same word used in Exodus 3.14, when God revealed himself to Abraham in the burning bush. I did the digging. If you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament used at that day and age, and you compare it, Exodus 3, to the New Testament Greek seen in Matthew, it's the same word. Christ chose this most manic and hectic moment to show his divinity to his disciples. It does have to make you wonder This must have been part of his plan all along, right? He sent them on this voyage without him. Shouldn't we ask ourselves, why? Why do you do that? The text doesn't explicitly state this, but I think it's safe to say that he knew that he was going to appear to these guys in this way, using this circumstance to reveal himself to the disciples. 
He says, it is I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appearing to them on the water before the storm. What could calm them more than that? He follows up this claim with a simple command. Do not be afraid. All right, Lord, that's easier said than done, right? (laughs) You know, most of the time in the Bible when God appears or when angels appear, they almost always say that. They say, do not be afraid. Because the glory and awesomeness of God is actually terrifying. There's a reason that they have to say that when they show up. Now, by a show of hands, has anyone seen any drawings online of biblically accurate angels? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. They are terrifying. Do not Google that before you go to bed. (laughs) But the point stands. God's glory and majesty brings people falling to their knees. His goodness is so amazing that our humble existence just can't handle it. Jesus said, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's this amazing quote from John Flavel in his book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, that says this. If we thoroughly understand and believe what power is in God's hand to defend us, What tenderness is in his heart to help us and what faithfulness is in his promises. Our hearts will be calm. Our courage will grow stronger and our fear will grow weaker. Honestly, our fellowship with Christ is what makes it possible not to be afraid. We have a savior, an ally, and a friend, someone who is in control and all-powerful. He is our defense, our caring father, and the God of reliable promises. And this, he is what should calm our hearts. If not for this relationship we have with God, we have every reason to be afraid. And I'm going to repeat that one more time, just a little bit differently. We have every reason to be afraid, if not for our relationship with God. All right, so now we get back to Peter on the ship, who is certainly afraid. Verse 28 says this, and Peter answered him. Now remember, he's responding to what Jesus just said. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. If it is you. They're still not even 100% sure Who have they seen performing this? Who they see on the water? They just don't know if it's Jesus or not. It appears as if Peter is either doubting Christ or he's putting him to the test somehow by asking him to to command Peter to come to him on the water. And then Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Talk about a miracle becoming personal. These guys had seen Jesus perform miracles before, but now Peter is a part of one. And the others in the ship are now watching as well. 
Jesus took control over nature and the earth, and he imparted some of that to Peter right now in this miracle. He needed his disciples to fully understand who he was. And in this miracle, he set himself apart from any other teacher of that day. He performed these miracles by himself, not by the command of God the Father or by the power of God the Father, but he did them himself as he and the Father are one. He is capable of performing this miracle by himself, on his own authority. All right, verse 30 continues and says, But when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. It's probably a little more crazy than that. It's probably like, Lord, save me. <laughs> Peter is seeing the power of the almighty God. And he was given a piece of that same power himself, and yet he got distracted and he got scared. Boy, I mean, doesn't that feel consistent with your experience of the Christian life? We have this promise and we're in communion with an all-powerful God and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and yet how quickly we forget the psalmist writes in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. In the same way that the psalmist is waiting for God, we are also waiting for God. We have his assurance and we know his promises, but we're not at the new creation yet, right? The psalmist is sinking in deep waters. Remember the imagery from Psalm 42. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And Peter's in the exact same place, literally, right? Literally and metaphorically. Peter lived in the same world that you and I live in right now. He's just as human as you and I. And he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. What is the wind in your life? What things do you see that take your eyes away from the Lord? It could be sin, it could be a distraction, but just think about it for a moment. What in your life is taking your gaze away from Christ? I can certainly relate to being in that place, that place where you've lost footing in your life or with your relationship with Jesus and you look to him like Peter and just say, Lord, save me. And praise the Lord that we can say that, right? That we have this luxury of his mercy and his grace that when we lose track or lose sight of him, that we can just say, Lord, save me. 
So Peter's sinking in the water. Now, mind you, he has left the solid ground of the boat at this point, at least in comparison to the water. I'm sure it's not super solid out there. And he's caught between the ship and Christ. But remember, he's sinking. All right, so next. Then Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Christ saved Peter from sinking into the water. He did not allow the waves to come crashing over him. But he also challenged him, right? He asked him, why did you doubt? Christ was probably thinking the same thing as Paul writes in his second letter to Timothy. It says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So why did Peter doubt anyway? He had already at this point seen Jesus perform tons of miracles. Has Jesus at this point in his ministry not yet proven himself? Why did he put Jesus to the test? I mean, you could argue, obviously, he was not sure if it was him, but we don't explicitly really get an answer. The best answer, I suppose, that we really have is that Jesus knew what was going to happen, and it was going to serve the purpose of showing the disciples who he really is. They could see him through this. Christ let Peter walk out onto the water, not just for the sake of walking on the water, and not just to see the Lord's power at work, but it also exposes his own weakness, right? When we look away from Christ or are looking at the wind, as Peter was, we begin to fall. But when we look to Christ, understanding the lack of our own strength, and say, Lord, save me, he will reach out his hand and save us. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says this regarding faith. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. By God's grace, we are saved, just like Peter was saved on the water that day. Jesus saves by his death, burial, and resurrection, and it is applied to us by faith. We don't deserve it, and there's no way that we can earn it ourselves. But this picture of Christ saving Peter on the water is a perfect picture of it. Peter certainly was not capable of walking on the water himself, right? We kind of established that earlier. (laughs) Jesus gave him a taste of his glory on the water. And then when Peter got scared, when he got lost again in his fleshly ways, he started to sink Romans 3 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, Peter, he looked aside on the water that day. He, was, he took his eyes off of Christ. And certainly he was not righteous or all-powerful enough to stand on that water by himself. It was Christ doing it, right? But Christ saved him. And the same has happened for us on the cross. Do you see it? Do you see how we are and were in the same place as Peter? We are not on the same plane as Christ in this world. Christ was fully man, fully God. We cannot hold ourselves up on our own merit, and we need to turn to Jesus and put our faith and trust in him. If you're in here and that's something you've never considered before, I would tell you to look at the others around you. Look to me or Pastor Anthony. We would love to answer your questions, pray for you, and help you see Jesus for who he is. Christ is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God, sent by God the Father out of the abounding and steadfast love that he has for us, his creation. John 3 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus said that. Jesus is the light of the world in our dark, dark world. And I would challenge us all today, do we know him? Do we all know him? So Peter is saved by Christ on the water, and the wind has ceased at this point. And the next thing we see is the response to Christ's saving work of Peter on the water. Verse 33, it picks up and says this, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And if you had been reading the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, you would realize that this is actually the very first time that the disciples are truly recognizing Christ for who he really is. They're looking at him and saying, you are the promised seed of Eve, the Redeemer, the Christ. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to you. You are the son of the living God. This is what they're saying. And they bow down in worship. And when we see Jesus for who he truly is, we have no other choice but to do the same. This is why we gather. This is why we do this. 
This is what this miracle is really accomplishing. This is why he really performed it. Jesus walking on the water points back and it shows the disciples that he wields power over the wind and the waves. It is a sign that proves his true identity. And yet the miracle also points forward. Or at least at this point in redemptive history. Remember, at this point in time, Christ hadn't yet performed his greatest miracle, his resurrection. This is a foretaste, a showing of his saving work on the cross to his disciples and to us. Christ alone is the one who strengthens our faith and saves us from death. And that, that is why he's worthy of worship. This is why the disciples worshiped him when they realized his true identity as the Christ. This is consistent with a pattern that we see all throughout scripture And it may feel familiar as something we've been trying to incorporate in our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings through scripture readings and prayer. At the beginning of our service, right, we see God, we see Christ for who he really is, how mighty, loving, powerful, strong, holy, altogether worthy of praise. And it exposes us, right? Just like it did to Peter on the water, we are met looking at ourselves, and we must confess to the Lord that we are not worthy and that we need him for his salvation. And then Christ freely gave it to us. He finished our salvation on the cross and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He assures us that we will never taste death. How sweet is that? And then we respond with thankfulness, adoration, praise, and worship because he's worthy of all of it. Truly, he is the son of God. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself in this way in your word. Thank you for the miracles that Jesus performed so that he could show his disciples who he was and ultimately show us who he is. We thank you for the saving that he provided through the death, burial, and resurrection, the ultimate sign of redemption that Jesus accomplished for us. As we sing this last song together, I just pray that we approach you with thankfulness, adoration, praise, and worship. You are just so worthy of all of it. As we saw in the miracle today, you save. We could not stand on our own on the waters. You are worthy of our worship. And in your son's name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.